Okay. All right. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is a little preamble to episode 38 of hi <laughs> yes, You may indeed. be wondering uh, why we haven't been on the airwaves for a while. And frankly, so are we. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of reasons for it, and we're going to give you the quick rundown on that and let yes, you know indeed. what's happening and what's coming up. Uh, but uh, so uh, part of what happened is uh, we... Uh, Somebody may have gotten a little bit too drunk during the recording of the last episode. Was it me? Oh yeah, was it, it was actually. It was you. <laughs> now we're gonna. We have a great interview with Dane DeRose. Uh, he's a great interview. Uh, we were kind of sloppy for that interview, so we you're gonna have to bear with us. But he 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 shines through on that. So we're gonna let this one out. We're not gonna bury it. Yeah. Apologies, Dane. <clears throat> and yes, and apologies to Dane. A super cool guy though, and he played along with us, so yes, it wasn't too bad. Um, but uh, so that's an issue we had to sort out. Uh, it, these podcasts uh, often turn into parties, yep. and uh, <laughs> it's fun. But we've lost more than one episode to, to circumstances yeah. like that. So we're tightening up our shit over here, Hi, people. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brain. Marshall Dude. Sport versus Marshall. Where did that come out? from? <laughs> I don't know, but that's Mr. Westfall. Yeah, you're going to hear from Jeff Westfall later on in the show. Uh, he's a listener that sent in a segment. That's the other thing you're going to get in this show is a our first listener recorded segment. Uh, that's right. And uh, we think you're going to enjoy it, but he gave us a, a couple of these, and we're going to tag him on to the next couple of episodes. And uh, please write in, tell us what you think. He he assured us he's very thick-skinned about this. Indeed. And he wants to get really y'all's opinion on what an audience might think of of what he has to say because he's getting ready to do uh, his own thing. Yeah, absolutely. But I've listened to these, and I think they're enjoyable, and I think you guys will like them. So please let us know what you think about that. Um, so, yeah, so we had a little in-house crisis we had to deal with, sort of sorting out uh, what we were going to do going forward. Um, and part of the thing is also, you know, my work schedule in life is changing to some degree, getting busier, actually. Indeed, mine too. Uh, yeah, so uh, we've realized that we can't throw a 12-hour party every time we want to record a podcast. <laughs> Especially being that it's on Sunday night and the next day is Monday. Yeah, so uh, we will still, uh, as frequently as possible, have the big roundtable sessions where everybody mm-hmm. gets slap happy. And <clears throat> we love those, and we'll do them as often as we can. But most of the podcast, uh, henceforth, we're going to have interviews and a couple of succinct Nice, tightened-up segments for you. Uh, <laughs> Interviews or discussion topics. Or discussion topics, yep. That's uh, your main two. And, uh, you know, some people have actually complained about the length we go on sometimes. So True. You know, especially if it's just a discussion topic episode, you should be looking at, you know, an hour-long podcast, give or take. Shout um, out, doctor. And uh, there's all sorts of other stuff. There's technical stuff that we need to take care of. Some of that we're going to take care of moving forward from this podcast. Some of it takes money, so those changes will be implemented over time indeed um but uh hi is not dead just or the rumors of our demise are greatly <laughs> exaggerated we're still with you and we still want to keep the content coming we just had to take a step back and reassess and also i'll say just personally this is my summer work season where when my wife is not teaching school and can watch the kid i double down and try to make some extra money to help us get through the year and I really stuck my foot in it this time. It always catches me <laughs> by surprise, but uh, I wound up just working 10, 11, 12-hour days. 
and uh, being too exhausted to even fool with it for a little while. So. I hear you. And my wife just started working again after, you know, four years being off after having our, our child. And I'm just now starting to get back to work again after a long hiatus in between projects and uh, got other stuff, you know, going on as well. Right. So the essence, we won't beat the bush uh, too vigorously with this. <laughs> we just want to let you guys know that, yeah, we've had to take a little time to get some work done. And, yes, we've had to take a little time to reassess. Um, basically, there were a lot of things just as far as how we do the podcast that sort of came together while we were learning how to do it. And it's become inefficient. And it has. The way we've been handling it. So even simple things like keeping track of emails from people and organizing booking and stuff, it's all it's all been very haphazard and whatever, you know, kludgy fix we could uh, put in there at the time we used. And now we're having to go back and sort of reassess all of that and figure out how to make it work efficiently and streamlined so we can keep the podcast coming. But the, one of the great things for all this is is the reason behind it. Um, and this hiatus uh, recently brought about some great things. And something I'd love to share with you listeners is the fact that when we first started this off, it was a love of the heart, and it still is. Uh, but we didn't know how it would take off, how it would do. Um, and after consistently looking at our numbers and them going up and up and realizing we still love this and we're getting great traction, uh, we just need to take our technology and a lot of the back-end stuff more seriously um, in the beginning, we just kind of did what we, you know, could get away with for the time. And now we realize we need to bring the whole ball game up another level. And that's what we're going to do for you. <clears throat> yep. We're going from rank amateur to semi-novice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, like I said a minute ago, you know, some of these things are things we can change right now. Other ones are, you know, I have to get a new computer soon, so I'm working on that. There are things that we want to do with the podcast that we've got to plug the technology in to do. We so. Do. That will be rolling out over the next few episodes, so just bear with us as we do that, but we intend now to keep the episodes rolling out as regularly as possible, at least twice monthly, hopefully more than that, if we can get our system down and efficient. Indeed, indeed. We'll still be bringing the high-op bitches straight to you. That's right. Anyway, with all that being said, folks, uh, sorry about our absence, and uh, we got uh, got a good episode coming up. Basically, Big Al sat in on this with us, so you'll get a, you'll get our introduction and the interview with Dane, and then at the end of that, we're just uh, we're going to tack on Jeff's segment, so please uh, make sure and give us and him feedback about that. He'll have his information in the segment. Excellent. So you can contact him. And uh, episode 39 should be following shortly on the heels of that because we're going to record it today. That's right. All right, people. Thanks so much for listening. And for all y'all that stuck out the dry spell in the feed, thank you so much for uh, not giving up on us. And we will punch you in the teeth later. That's right. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination, I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hi-Ya, the only podcast that tried to do a double palm change and wound up with its arms through the wrong sleeves of its frog button jacket. <laughs> Episode 38, recorded June 9th, 2013, starts now. Super Frog 38. Congratulations, Dave. Really packing them on. That I've got sounds like a big and large margin in the house with us once again, backed Ooh. by popular demand. Hey, thanks for that shout out. More Big Al. More Big <laughs> Al. Big Al is loud. <laughs> 
yeah, there was a there was one of you guys out there that's a Big Al fan and asked specifically for more Big Al, and so guess what? That's what you get in more Big Al. You get more Big Al up in your face. Also, be, hey, be careful what you ask for. That's hey. right. You just might get it. Uh, tonight we've also got uh, Dane DeRose, who is a head fencing fencing coach at Drew University, and also does sambo, hard contact karate, judo, and all manner. Wow. Does he do a little uh, fishing? He might. You haven't checked. Fetching, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what you were going for in the beginning. So I just want filching, to fencing. I think I just somehow garbled the just two together. Stepped all you over that. The fence. Yeah, and we got news coming up later and some other junk. So, folks, anything we got to get on the way up front here? Yeah, am I doing news? What was that? Yeah, well, not that I know. Of. Yeah, don't even try, Craig. Don't all even right, try. Right. I think Big Al's doing media mop up today. Man, I did janitorial duty last time. <laughs> Fifty some years, and I'm still sweeping up this yeah, joint. Man, I tell you. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're running late getting into our interview, so we better go ahead and kick this thing off. Yeah. yeah. All right, Craig, quick. get your kicking shoe on. Kick, 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 karate <laughs> kick, yo. We'll be right back with our interview. Show it, give it up. I don't Can you hear me? I'm Craig. Hi, Hi Craig. Yeah, Big nice Al here. Nice to meet you. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say here that we're all with Dane DeRose. Uh, we'll start out talking about your personal life, you know, uh, your personal uh, martial arts history. So you can just kind of give everybody a feel for where you're coming from and your, the different styles you've done. And who you are, yeah. But, you know, you can just recap that. And then, yeah, we, we really want to talk about fencing because that's something most of us here know next to nothing about. Uh and also, you know, the Sambo, uh, uh, the hard contact karate, the judo, any of that, man. We, we yeah. just love to hear good martial arts stories and, and talk about this stuff. Well, okay. Um, you know, it all started when I was a child. You know, uh, just kidding. <laughs> well, actually, not really in one way. Um, <laughs> you know, people who started me in martial arts said my mom, which used to be, believe it or not, back when I was a kid, an unusual way of saying it. Now, of course, with every kid in martial arts, it's quite different. But... Um, you know, I started in judo in 1965, um, and the judo of that time was so completely different than it is now. It's just kind of amazing. The, uh, you know, um, you could do just about any manner of throw. You couldn't throw someone on his face the way you can in sambo. Um, you know, and uh, but it was about 50% mat work. And now, if you're on the mat longer than a certain amount of time, by necessity, doing setups and movements and positions, you're doing jiu-jitsu by de facto, you know? Right. Um, and uh, my first teacher was Mamoru Shimamoto, who had been an Olympic hard training coach for the Japanese team. 
his uh, brother-in-law, Uto Teruhiku, I'm, I'm saying the name's Japanese stuff, so it would be Teruhiko Uto, um, you know, the way we say it, um, it introduced me to karate in um, around 1971. Um, and Back I had the golden days. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? The golden Back age? The golden days, yeah. Well, I uh-huh. suppose. So, yeah, karate was the big deal. Back then, yeah. yeah, that's true. Gong Fu came in just a little later, you know, along with, uh, you know, uh, the, the TV show, which is funny because, you know, first there was the, the Green Hornet and then uh, Kung Fu with David Carradine, which should have been Bruce Lee now that, right. you know, now that that's out. Uh, but, yeah, those were, those were the golden days for that kind, that sort of martial art. Um, I was lucky because... Uh, my, uh, you know, the dojo that I practiced in, you know, an uh, Eastern European immigrant by the name of Alex Kafitz, who I still, I don't hear from him. If he hears this, I hope he'll give me a call. Yeah. Um, he moved out to the Poconos, and we, we're, we're, you know, we've always been friends, but we don't see each other. We're um, big in the Poconos, so he'll probably hear this. Okay, cool. <laughs> he was the, the reason why I started Sambo, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it was this unknown thing with a weird-looking jacket, or so I thought at the time. Right. Um, back then, the Sambo jackets were white, and the belts were red and blue. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, jiu-jitsu, believe it or not, I started in the old-fashioned American kind, where essentially it was, you know, descended from both judo and the unarmed combat that are my dad, your granddad, maybe learned to, <laughs> to, uh, right. to win the Second World War. And as I found out later... Um, you know, it's funny, that unarmed combat was uniform. The techniques and things like that just happened to coincide. What's effective is effective for the Russians, for the Germans, for the Japanese. Um, Toshikakuto, which was their unarmed martial art. I mean, not, not martial art, unarmed combat. You know, it's a quick right. course, you know, Military. hit the guy with the palm. You know. It's all pretty much the same as what Fairbairn used, although Fairbairn was the great genius of unarmed combat as far as I'm concerned. Um you know, and I learned that, so eventually became involved in Jiu-Jitsu in other ways later with other organizations, I'd say notably Jiu-Jitsu America. Now, along with that, my family had always fenced. Um, and as a kid, I had done, you know, martial arts, so to speak, and I had two uncles, and they didn't show me anything about it, um, but would speak of it, and I'd heard of these greats, you know, the names of Giorgio Santelli or uh, Gerald Citrullo is a regional great up here in, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, people have heard of these people, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, household names to me, weird names to other people. Um, I got sick in 1972, 73, um, lost a lot of weight as a result, uh, was, you know, relatively, still relatively healthy, but the strain was enough so that, you know, maybe I shouldn't play judo for a while. Um, and uh, I took up fencing, you know, uh, then it was... Uh, a lot of did, fun, you know. Did you uh, take it up with your family or, or independently? Oh, uh, independently. Um, okay. And the funniest thing is, my family had done. If you you know fencing, it's um, you know it's like it tend to run, tends to run in families. But my family had mostly done foil and at bay. And the first thing I wanted to do was pick up a saber. <laughs> so it was against the family tradition. But um, and that was my first weapon and. Uh, I didn't compete all that amazingly seriously compared to, uh, you know, judo, mostly for rank, you know, in those days, and even to my third down where I won, I won five matches in a row. You know, they they don't rest you. It's called kachinukishai. If you win by wazari or a half point or above, 
sufficient score, they bring out the next guy. And either okay. you throw five or lock. I actually choked out two or three of them. It was still, you know, they still allowed to extend the network at that time. And, uh, you know, for Sundown, it was, you know, that was the, the best performance, I think, that I did in judo. But I was doing it for rank. I was too dumb to realize, you know, I, that I didn't want the trophies. I was in graduate school, you know, and uh, the rank tournaments were the ones I went to. Right. That was more important to me. Karate, I, you know, did all through my college days in the 70s. There was this small group up there that was forming a chain that we thought was very out of chain of karate schools. And, and in Massachusetts, that was what is now United Studios of Self-Defense, kind of places the same time, um, you know, that I was doing karate in, say, the New, Eng- New England area. Uh, ran into ITF Taekwondo people, trained with them, which I feel like one of the most valuable things I ever did because of the research and de- uh, development that was going on in kicking at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and I ran into, uh, you know, at that time, my, my, I, I, I had some contact, as most people do in the striking arts. You know, you wander around, you meet new people, hopefully they'll be friends. You know, um, I ran into some Fujiao Pai practitioners who were in college but lived in New York City, so they were up in Massachusetts, and uh, some Wing Chun people. And then much later in time, uh, one of my instructor's friends, uh, Yoshisada Yonesuka, who's a judo Olympic coach, has a student named um, Chun Man Seng, who's not only a, a great international karate man in contact karate, um, he uh, practiced with Frank Francis Fong, so he's introduced to... Um, you know, the Jeet Kune Do, uh, not the, I'm sorry, I forget which form of the Jeet Kune Do groups it was, but it's the one that Francis Fong is in. Um, yeah. And we yeah, began we to... Sc- about the Fong, sir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We he's began, a local guy, mm-hmm. or was. Yeah, he still yeah, is. Still he's still down is. the street. Wonderful Let man. Let me ask you something real quick. Um, every time I hear you say a Japanese name, it sounds extremely regional the way you say it. Do you speak uh, a little bit more than just the karate in Japanese? Uh, it sounds like you, you have a little bit of grasp of the Japanese languages out, even outside of uh, saying the forums. My wife's Japanese. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that oh, yes. answers the yeah. rest of the story. And, yeah. um, we met fencing. She took a fencing lesson early on. Um, and now she's, believe it or not, on the Japanese national veterans team. Right. Uh, she's still a citizen. Veterans means masters. In other words, over... A certain age, you know, the old folks, right? And (laughs) uh, she qualified here but wasn't a citizen, so she's actually in Japan right now and helping take care of my in-laws because they're getting Uh a bit older, you know, as you might imagine. And and she's actually in one of the qualifiers. Hopefully, you know, she'll make the world team again. But yeah, yeah. to you, my friend. No, thanks. I just recognize the fact that when you you speak Japanese, it wasn't like an American speaking Japanese. It was... Yeah, it was regional. Nicely done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. And I don't say karate. You know, <laughs> but, but, and You say well, it properly, karate. Yeah. Karate, yeah. Uh, well, it's you know, some, then I have to say karate, because people want to know what you're talking about. That's um, right. Also, my, you know, my first exposure to samba was uh, with Russian people, you know, Soviet. You know, actually, forgive me. I made the mistake of saying Soviet <laughs> yeah. one day and got corrected. Maybe you know, it's George. Us folks or... of a certain age can be forgiven for that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was interesting when you said that when you started in judo in 65 that you did a great deal of groundwork. And oh. I, know, I know some of, the, some of the major guys that were teaching judo in the early 60s here in Atlanta had said the exact same thing 
that in this time that they've been teaching judo for 40 or 50 years, they got to where their school almost does no groundwork. Right. Yeah, I've heard lots of complaints lately about judo from people who do judo, judo about it being changed. sort of regulated into the ground. That's how all the arts have become. Dude, kung fu has wushu. You know, Salat has their thing. Judo has their thing. But, yeah, what do you think about that? What do you mean about the changes of the rules and things? No, yeah. not necessarily. It's just a whole platform of training. In other words, you know, there, there was an implied thing. Of, you know, people that I know that have done Aikido talk about if they studied with some of the early of Osensei's uh, teachers, you know, people that came up early in his when he was teaching, it's a very hard Aikido. It's a very designed, to, you know, it's a very bone-breaking, get them on the ground very, very quickly. And then later, the ones that when he was much older, they're doing a much softer form of Aikido. Well, I can I tell you that from personal experience with Hapkido. Um, Aikido before the war, Aikido, Japanese Aikido before the war, was not based on uh, wrist locks or manipulation of the joints. Um, there were a lot of body throws, and very much I, I did, you know, I have a few videos, believe it or not, of this where, you know, yeah, I mean, the quote from um, both, um, let me see, uh, Ueshiba himself, Ueshiba Morihei, um, and, and again, a friend of mine, believe it or not, the guy, he's famous for World War II combatives, Carl Sestari, was, you know, oh, he was, you know, actually practicing Aikido with Roy Goldberg up in this one Taikai in uh, Canada, and they ran into Gozo Shioda, Shioda Gozo, and, um, and they said, well, what's the secret when you're in a fight? He said 90% of his attending, meaning hitting people. So, you know, the, um, the forearm striking, the, uh, uh, you know, shamanate palm, rising palm strike, all that kind of stuff, much more important, much more combative before the war. And now it is a spiritual journey. Now, you can't denigrate spiritual journeys, but if you're talking about fighting and martial application, it, you go, it has to be a bit different than what you're practicing. With Hapkido, too, amazing, amazing. I met a man named Chin, Chang Chinil, Chinil Chang, they call him. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. We and, interviewed a fellow named Manuel Andrigay that, that gave us the whole backstory on how Taekwondo got started in the ITF and WTF and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, well, no, hey, uh, Chang Chinil and I have seen what passes for Daitoryu. There's many interpretations of Daitoryu, Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with Chang Chinil, first of all, he was an incredibly obliging man. Um, he walked in in a judo uniform and was not in any way grandiose. Um, and then when we got down to it, first of all, we, we spent minutes. It was fun and it was very nice. We were trying to figure out a technique that, you know, he knew that we didn't know. And he was perfectly willing to go through iteration and iteration of technique, and I was like getting pretty far afield. And then finally, <laughs> finally, okay, and then we did that. And man, he did Daito Yuaiki Jiu-Jitsu with kicks. And the strikes were amazing, the kicks were great, the techniques were solid. It wasn't just, you know, turn a wrist and recite philosophy. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, right. That's um, how I like to do it. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> when I get laid, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easy. I mean, it's easier, you know. But um, you know, he was right on the money. There was nothing airy or, forgive me, mysticism has its place. And I believe in chi. I took I've, I've had acupuncture treatment. I believe in chi. I just don't believe some places where people will take it, right? And um, he had an ability to put a hurt on you, and he was a really nice guy. But, you know, he outright said, look, this is a mixture. This is the Korean stuff, but it's a lot Daitoryu. And, um, you know, it was wonderful to see because I could see for sure it was the same stuff. Right? Yeah, well, um, you know, 
Kano, Kano turned the art into a sport, and Oshiba turned it into a spiritual path. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. so, so where do you split the difference and say, well, where's the marshal here? Where's well, I, the right way? I have to say, Kano thought of judo, and I've read, I've, I've read his writings. Put in the, um, he thought of judo as a movement, a way of life, and he had a balance between self-defense, exercise, and sport. And in 1939, when he died, and I really do believe that he died as a result of this is there's no way to prove it, and I'm sorry because this is, and it's not you know. I love conspiracy theories because it makes everyone seem very effective and planful when really we're mostly chaotic and stupid. But you know, <laughs> exactly, um, the, he was yeah, an internationalist. He was an internationalist at a time when uh, the Japanese military, especially the younger officers, were actually assassinating people who were not very traditional and jingoistic, you know, militaristic. And Connor would have none of that. He went to an IOC meeting. And that famous, you know, a situation where he threw this gigantic wrestling, supposedly gigantic Russian wrestler, and then caught him and, you know, caught him so he wouldn't hit his head, uh, was on that trip on a boat to go to the IOC meeting. On the way back, he dies of flu. Now, people died of flu in those days. That's true. Yeah. But at the same time, I really do believe he was poisoned um, because people, he was too important a character, and, but too, too much of an internationalist. For the you know Japanese outright kill him. I mean not Japanese these these Japanese young officers um, to to outright kill him the way they were killing other pacifist politicians of his day. That sounds like a um, Don Dreger story too. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, that's, it, it, yeah. I mean, with all like for instance, with all the shenanigans that went on around Taekwondo and its introduction to the West and the spying in the background and stuff with that, I I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of skullduggery involved. Yeah. It's just hard to know. But no, what I mean is, actually, I'm sorry, I got pretty far afield. The, the judo, judo, really, Kano talks specifically about self-defense. I don't see where some of the, you know, I think, not David Starbuck, but one of them, I think it was Starbuck. Yeah, that's right. He wrote a book where he felt that Kano had invented a sport for this and that. Kano really uh, gave dominance, and actually wrote that he gave dominance to standing play because he felt that you might be confronted with more than one person. Right. So I mean, obviously, self-defense yeah. was his was his goal, but it wasn't his only goal, right? And um, yeah. you know, and I really do. I'm, I, you know, I'm sorry. I'm a little. Maybe it's just that I'm old-fashioned. God bless the people who are playing judo and enjoying it right now, but I really miss the balance that judo used to have. Oh yeah. Right? Originally, yeah. it was supposed to be like, you know, a jutsu is something that was the unarmed samurai's combat. It came down from that. Supposedly, and then it you know ends up being just a sport, you know, and some of it's outlay, and sometimes that can be you know, you know, a little bit angering if you're a traditionalist and so on and so forth. But those avenues have their place, and it creates different styles and different flavors, which kind of makes up a, a great thing, a great buffet for the average individual to pick and choose. You know, no, as you look, you know, to me, it's like. Uh, and to some Japanese people, uh, you know, Maida and his uh, trend, uh, his uh, play and, and the transformation of the judo he did in uh, in Brazil and um, and uh, Ochepkov and the uh, trend, you know translate the Russian translation. It's all kind of styles of judo. I wouldn't say it's styles of judo uh, because it really has evolved into something different. And judo seems to have evolved to make room for those different things, kind of to leave them alone. But um, but if you look at Sambo Judo and uh, Jiu-Jitsu in the Brazilian iteration, it's the same stuff. 
but yeah. it's just the same stuff. So you know, um, different people emphasis. are people. Yeah, they yeah. emphasize different aspects, but uh, you know, a takedown yeah. is a takedown. But my karate is best. Let's keep that in perspective here, folks. Right? <laughs> oh, and, and he does Taekwondo. Oh, I do. Yeah, he and does. I he's shall really, he's really, he's really yeah. kind of good at it. But I, but no, I, as, as being an old boxer, the part of this whole thing is about striking first. <laughs> I mean, and so the whole idea. I mean, I know a lot of great guys that actually use. In fact, I know of, of an Aikido school that here in town, here in Atlanta, that actually uses Shing Yi's five fists as their entry. Hmm. That makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, it does because if because the whole entries. idea is we hit on a plane. If I can get your arms and everything out of the way, and and, and actually be able to get close to you, the old Shingy classics talk about we fight at a distance with our hands and our feet, and we work our way to our shoulders and our hip. <laughs> it's not just your shoulders and hips, right? It's theirs. <laughs> it's, it, well, and yeah, it's our shoulders and hip going through theirs, and we know that if I really want to throw somebody, well, I got to put you got to put a hip on. Them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, yeah well, give him a little love. Go, go ahead. I just it's funny because when you talk about Shingy and um by the way, my only real I mean I've seen Shingy, but my only real practice of any sort and it's not deep, not at all, is a Yichuan in um uh in Japan, believe it or not. Um and uh it's a big movie, you know the straight was, was that Wang Shu Jen's old students? Yeah, Da Chang Chen. Yeah. Right. Um the the well you know, I I'm 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 glossing and I'm sorry, but but to me, it's like when I see Bagua and Xing Yi, it's the same thing as the Wing Chun phenomenon with fencing. The techniques and, you know, the Bagua and, and the Spanish circle yeah. uh, of fencing yeah. and the Xing Yi and the straight line fencing, you know. And then you see Wing Chun and his patterns of, uh, of defense and offense, you know, even the beat attacks and disengages and, and uh, envelopments. And you go, well, you know, it's easy to say somebody met somebody somehow and transferred information you know and um you know i don't know i don't know i think that was just a common way of fighting you know if you wanted to deal with multiple potential opponents you know you would stay upright you would grapple and strike in an upright position for as long as you could yeah i agree i completely agree going to the ground in combat it's just so dicey you know going to the ground mano a mano fighting where you know even if you're being really rough on each other nobody's armed and you know, there aren't several people. It makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Yeah, it's you know? fun. That's what you do with your younger brother, and that's what you might do if you know that there's a fence up. Nobody can get through and attack me, you know? <laughs> well, you yeah. can also do it at a very high level of sporting and be an incredible athlete. And, uh, oh, yeah, and make a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. a oh, yeah. career oh, yeah. today. No, but in, by the way, speaking as someone who I essentially used, like my own sensei, I, sensei, I, I used a lot of chokes. Um, you know, through You're a naughty through, boy. Well, come on, you know, it was what we had to do, and I was not yep. so heavy, you know. So, but um, you know, using a lot of chokes, I, you know, when you come to combat, no, I'm not going to pull you to the ground. <laughs> if I, I mean, unless uh, unless you're stomping me at the time, you know, and I have nothing yeah. else to do, but bring you down there you know, with you. you. Have nothing else to do. You know, it's like, oh, uh, 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 no, I mean, if I have no options other than that, and you've got me on the ground already, sure, you know, you fight where you are, but. Um, you know, but also I, I was also thinking about this bit where, um, well, you know, to become a fencing master, you have to write a thesis. Wow! Right? And I was Very called cool. it. Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't. It is not my idea, but um, <laughs> no. No, but, I'm just saying. Uh, kudos to the idea. Yeah. I like it. Oh yeah, it, it, it's and, and many of them very good. There was one though that synthesis, and I don't mean to, you know, uh, you know, the poor guy obviously. 
uh, had had only a certain exposure to these different things, <laughs> and possibly not as thorough as it could have been. <laughs> so his thesis was essentially Bruce Lee's effect, uh, affect on fencing, because Jeet Kune Do and fencing were so similar. Obviously, this gentleman had not read the, the dedication to the dog Jeet Kune Do, where he gave credit <laughs> to Julio Martinez Castello and, you know, uh, and the other fencing masters from whom he drew, drew material. Right. You know, um, and by the way, I make a circle, draw a line through it. Yeah. Well, and that, and that brings me to the point where you were talking about, you brought up the Spanish circle. So how does the circle really, I mean, if you look at sport fencing now, it just looks very linear and it looks like you really need to have very, very quick reaction. But how does that translate into the idea of actual defense? That's the big Al came to the rescue right there. Well, look, you know, um, I'd be the first one in martial arts classes, especially striking arts, to say, hey, look, if you're the shorter fencer, you approach, you, if you go straight in, you're going to get machine gunned on the way there. Right? Right. If you, you move in arcs around the opponent to negate the, the reach, and the bigger the opponent, the larger the arc to the point where you're running around him and hoping for time, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the, the Spanish method really predated the lunge. What is the okay? Spanish method? A lot, a lot of us have no clue what you're talking yeah. about, so you're going to have to get really <laughs> kindergarten on us. Yeah, learning to speak Dane, I'm sorry. Um, right. you know, the Spanish method is moving in a circle around, around the opponent, and the opponent, he's in the center of your circle, you're in the center of his. Um, so it's a lot like the envisionment that Bagua Zhang has uh, for its um, you know, uh, defense and offensive theory. You're moving, you're moving in, in essentially a circular manner yeah. around the opponent. Um, that, Trying to cut angles and change direction suddenly. Yeah, yeah, you could. You could change it, yeah. But the thing is, though, really, okay, this guy's got a three-foot or more spike. Right. Um, it's got edges on it, and if I thrust myself forward too, too violently, um, I could get stuck on this spike. So moving around the guy in a circle is very, very wise. Okay? Um, but in those days, the weapons were made of less well-made tempered steel and the, although the steel was probably good, the weapons were heavy, they wanted to have a lot of impact with the weight of the blow, you could not parry and repost with one hand. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, it would take, if you did a parry the way sensors do it now, it would drive your body weight you know, away Onto from... The, yeah. Right. So, um, you know, the idea of having a, a, a mangosha, you know, that's the French term, a left-hand uh, dagger that's Second heavy enough dagger, to parry... Yeah. All that kind of stuff that came from circling around the opponent, cross-stepping and stepping in, but not lunging. And then a fellow about 500, 600 years ago by the name of Capoferro, yep, Ironhead, um, okay, yeah. you know, came up with this idea called a lunge, which was half an attack, but you leave your back leg yeah. behind you. Um, oh, it's as, so, it sounds like so kung fu. <laughs> it really sounds like kung fu. Yeah, doesn't it? it really I mean, does. really, yeah, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Right? Um, and the blades were light enough, but yet strong enough, so that um, you could parry and repose with the same hand. And at that point, the lunge, you know, really what happened, I think, was it's not that the linear fencing won out in terms of, oh, this is more effective. But when you're lunging back and forth at each other, even if you're moving around, that final movement you know, of the attack is always in a straight line. So when fencing became a sport, and here we have that word sport and what it does to a combative activity, okay, it always perverts it a little bit, you know, right? Um, then yeah, it but became, we all need a little love before the you know, final tickle. 
they're, they're <laughs> but um, you know, they turned into a fourteen meter by one and a half meter strip with you know a re- referees watching on both sides. The referee on one side called the president to do combat in the in order. Now he's called the referee. Don't worry. You know, um, <laughs> and on, yes. and on the I was other afraid side, I was going to have to say that at you, the end of this. <laughs> yeah, and on the other side, you had a jury, a, literally a jury, a, a panel of people seeing, judging the hits. Okay. Um, and the straight line made it really easy to see what was going on. No one circled. You never had somebody's back to you. Right. Nothing was obscured. Makes then sense. later on, it became electric, so you put the box on one side with the two lights on it and the, the referee on the other so you could see. And it, even now, you know, uh, the, the, sometimes the fence, you get some kind of lights, you don't see, and the referee doesn't see what happened. Right? But that made it very, very easy. Now, here it's coming back again. This is very interesting to me. As fencing goes wireless, and it does, right? At one point or another, people are going to start questioning why it's in a straight line. Yeah, yeah, and you know? and, and you just brought up a point. I mean, when you look at you look at speed, seems to be, and and you actually introduced the idea of a longer body versus a shorter body, and that mm-hmm. whole idea of speed. When you look at real knife fighting, it's a very quick thing that happens. It's over with. It's not this very movie quick, set yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens very, very quickly. Where they lock the and, blades together right. and well, lean yeah, into yeah. each other. And, 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 you know, and yeah. so <laughs> the one thing that I say that when we actually look at knife stuff, I go, there is no such thing as knife fighting. There's only knife survival. Yeah. If you're looking at it from a purely you know, defensive standpoint. But as this idea of this type of sport, is oh, that sure. yeah. if yeah. I'm lunging, now I'm big. Gravity and I have an agreement. I don't move very fast. You don't hurt me. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny. I teach uh, knife work in my club. My brother doesn't love it very much. We, we run the club together. Um, but, um, you know, and it's amazing how much nonsense there is oh, in yeah. knife work, right? Um, it, I, one in ten moves, especially if you're a little faster than the other person already, you do get to make a long attack to the to the body mass, but it has to be you have to make an at least one sideways step around him first before you go in, right? And then you have to punch out as fast as you punch in. You're rarely going to get away with that, you know? Right. Um, but I tried it. Why to see, to see, like, can you do this at all? And yes, you can do it, you know? The weirdest thing, though, it's interesting. Um, it, 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 the IMHO, right, Philippine obsession with defanging the snake sometimes leaves you open to deeper attacks. Right, exactly. Okay? And I, I was surprised at how little, and by the way, this is not to say they're ineffective. Don't know, hope no one gets mad at me. But they're, no, no. You know, <laughs> it's, it's I, very I, effective. Everybody yeah. gets mad at everybody. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing. There's not a lot of what we call intensing, esquive, in other words, body dodging. You know, in Filipino martial arts, it's more block strike, walk in, walk out. But there's not a lot of, you know, um, using your body to evade. You don't move your center body mass all that much once you're in line making the strike. Um, it is funny, the Russians do the same thing with um, Russian knife fighting combat. There are schools of Russian knife fighting combat where really what it is is you get in there and you make that damned hardest uh, maneuver you can make so that if you cut him, you know, you're taking something off him. You know, it, it, it was hard to get used to watch. Sorry? Yeah. Make, make it count. Yeah. I was yeah. hard to, it was hard to watch at first because I was so used to subtle movements, sl- slow circling cuts, using the wrist a lot, in, out, a whole thing like this. Then watching a guy basically jump in there and make this whole body swing. I'm like, what are you? And then I went, oh, my God, yeah, it would take your whole freaking head off. You know, <laughs> oh, okay, all right, I get it, I get it. You know, it's like, you know, uh, kind of like the Thai roundhouse. 
you're not blocking that. You're backing away in fear. <laughs> right, you know, right, exactly. You know, but uh, it's the same principle and structure. It's just a matter of how big the circle and how deep the circle penetrates. Well said. Well said. Very yeah, well and the said. Other, and the other thing that I see is that when you look at some of the Escrima and Kali guys, that one of the one of the guys that here in town that I've you know I've got a little experience with is that every time anybody lunged at him with a knife, he cut their leg. I mean, he just, he would actually move off to the circle, step off to the side. As soon as you make the the lunge, he would actually, well, he would be stabbing at the knee because that would be the closest thing for him. Oh, yeah. But he didn't care. He just, he would stab and go move to the side. Yeah. And it was, and it was very, very effective. And And I was sitting there going, you know, he wasn't worrying about it. And he was the same thing. You said it. He sat there and said, look, our art always talks about defanging the snake. He goes, defanging the snake will get your head cut off. There you go. Yeah, sometimes. And by the way, and that's the first time I ever found, you know, I was with, and by the way, we were friendly and we were having a good time or we wouldn't have done it. It wasn't a competitive style against style thing. Right, sure. A friend of mine is Filipino instructor, and he was, he himself, good man, and by the way, he only made that mistake once. Um, you know, we're, he was concentrating <laughs> you on my... sure of that, yeah, that's you? right. Well, I mean, come on, we that's were right. having fun with soft blades, you know. <laughs> right, um, right. And he concentrated too much on the hand, and I put it right on his carotid. And he went, wow, gee, I guess, yeah, you know. And he, you know, <laughs> smiled, and we got back to work, you know. Uh, so, like I say, you know, so it, it is, there's, there's a flaw in any over-concentrating, uh, uh, you know, obsession on any one part. Yeah, there's no you know? do-over there. You know? <laughs> By the way, have you heard, have you heard the old, this is an old story, and so old that many fencers don't know it. Tell have us. Have you ever heard of the coup de Jarnac? We have not. Tell us. Okay. There was a fellow named Jarnac, and he ran afoul of a nobleman in France in the 17th century. Um, yeah, 17th century, just at the end of the 17th century, um, who was a great duelist and an incredible swordsman. And this guy, Jarnac, knew nothing. So he did something out of Scaramouche, the novel by Raphael Sabatini. He went and he found the guy who taught this one nobleman and <laughs> paid him and said, What can I do? And he said, uh, Well, you know, the duels went, yeah, okay. Obviously, this um, this fencing instructor had never seen the collected kids, so he didn't make him paint his house. Right. Um, and and he, he gave him a basic instruction. Said, "Look, look, this is what I can figure. You know, if he makes a big long movement at you, cut at the back of his leg. Okay. And the, the day of the duel comes, and short shooting, the fellow makes a long movement, and Jarnac cuts around him in you know in footwork and in blade, and hamstrings one side." And uh, the nobleman was shocked and, again, very proud and went after him, damned, you know, and by the way, this is it. You know, if the guy hits you when you try it, don't take a death grip in a match on the technique you just tried. Make it work in practice later. Switch. Switch to something else. Right. Change it up. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't change it up. He took a death grip on this nobleman, took a death grip on the technique he was trying, and he got cut on the other leg. So there he is lying there. He was so ashamed of himself, he refused treatment and died from uh, blood loss. And hence then, you know, this coup du jarnac is famous as, okay, dodge around him and cut to the back of the leg. Right, um, and that's nice. the European story about it. You know, it's, it's uh, great to have a dirty tactic named after yeah. you. Nobody messes with you after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And, if, and if you, you cut know. the Achilles tendon, it just screws up your golf swing. Or the, yeah. <laughs> Oh, they Lord. don't do the Craig much anymore. <laughs> but yeah, oh yeah, with the femoral artery and all that other good stuff in the leg, that's a tasty yeah. prime target. Um, so uh, the you're a you're a sport fencing coach, right? I'm a what? Sorry, a sport fencing? Oh yes, I'm uh, the head coach at Drew University varsity men's and women's fencing. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, and it, I was looking on the web. It looks like you guys have a really good program over there. Well, you know, thank you. We try. You know, um, <laughs> it started out as a D3 program, and it is still a D3 program. But, I mean, we we brought a long way to having NCA, you know, finalists. Which What's for any- that mean exactly, a D2 versus a D3 or whatever you're saying? Uh, uh, I don't have any clue what that means. Most of our listeners probably don't either. Sure. Well, you know, I'll tell you, and it'll probably come out for the first time when I became a fencing coach, I didn't know what the hell that meant either. Um, <laughs> but I had coached a high school. Um, the job came open. I thought some Russian guy would get it. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to apparently have done a good interview or fool people or whatever, you know, um, and uh, the job. <laughs> and um, D3, there are three divisions within the National Collegiate Athletic Association called the NCAA. Division three is, okay, we're all scholars. If the coach buys you a candy bar, that's too much, right? You will not get any favors. You may not use, you may not make endorsements. You are a scholar and an athlete second. Right. Div two, they'll allow a certain amount of money to be spent on athletic scholarships. And uh, Div one, where you have the big boys in terms of sport, the Penn States, the Notre Dames, the Ohio States, et cetera, right? Um, then they can give you a full-ride scholarship. But if you're getting a full-ride scholarship, you owe them, you know, um, to do as much work on your athletics as you do on, uh, I, I, you know, I'd say, yeah, it's probably equal, you know, um, as you do on your, um, on your uh, uh, studies. Now, of course, you want the NCAA is there to make sure that everybody is a student, not uh, an, a paid athlete, right? But, um, but yeah, you know, the, if you're getting your entire college scholarship, even, you know, uh, tuition, your, um, maybe even books. Yeah, you really do owe them two practices a day and to work out as hard as you can. Sure. So how yeah. did you learn uh, what that exactly meant? Well, you see, I got this job, and yeah. I had to know. <laughs> right. and they, yeah, you, know, you didn't they, have a choice. Yeah. Right. And they, they, um, there was a, a test that you have to take once a year to make sure that you're complying, that you're not interviewing people before, you know, high school students before the correct amount of time, that you're not having excessive contact or offering them too much or, let's say, paying for too many dinners, um, you know, so that they call it compliance. In other words, making sure that it's all fair and everyone's playing on the same playing field. Oh, right? okay. So, now, very to, cool. to make right. it so, very complex, not complex, to make it, you know, a little bit more interesting, um, there are certain sports that aren't national collegiate. And it's like, what the hell does that mean? Well, that means that the divisions don't apply to competitions. That means that once a year, and I'm glad we do it, and Wes Guan and Emmett Cadenov over at Penn State uh, are mentors and friends, I hope, still, you know, um, <laughs> after all these years, but that we will take the Drew University team and with our, you know, Division three athletics program, and we'll go over and fence a bunch of D1 programs and some D3 programs over at Penn State and fence Penn State, which is kind of like taking, you know, Oh, gee, some small regional college and going up against Penn State in basketball. You know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be suicide, but we do win a few individual bouts, and that helps us to, you know, get individual fencers to qualify to the final. So that essentially, nice. you know, although we can't give scholarships, Penn State can. We can't give scholarships, Sacred Heart University in, say, Connecticut can. You're in Georgia. There's no varsity fencing in Georgia. But UNC, uh, Chapel Hill, or Duke, uh, um, well, Duke doesn't get scholarships. They did to Rebecca Ward, who is an Olympic bronze medalist, but why wouldn't you? You know, <laughs> so, um, you know, um, 
they, they, you know, those people can will go up against them. And so Drew is, you know, as it was described, and I was very grateful for that kind of coverage. You know, we had this D1 NCAA final, and one D3 fencer made it, a guy named James White from Drew University. And uh, they, they described them as being from tiny Drew University, a Division three program in uh, Madison, New Jersey, which was great, you know. Um, and it made us look really, really good. Um, uh, but, yeah, it is, a, you know, it's like we were, what, the, the giant killers, you know, kind of, or not even giant killers because we didn't kill any giants. We, um, let me see. Work on that, if you would. You know, we, 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 um, we were, like, punching above our weight, put it that way, to get right. a guy into the finals, you know. Well, no, and, it's awesome. Fencing seems like it's such a, you know, an individualistic sport that it would be hard to have total dominance, you know, even against a, a smaller club. Uh, as long as you had a few, you know, uh, the individual can really shine out regardless of division, it, it would seem. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. There's no telling where some people are going to go. If the program at a Division three school is very good and attracts a, a top-level fencer, as we, as we have in the past, I think in the, a number of them, um, then they go there whether it's going to pay them to fence or not. Because you're going to college, hopefully, to get an education. You know? No, 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 no. You go to the college to meet women. Yeah. <laughs> but, a lot but, of drugs, yeah. a little but, alcohol. But, yeah. Yeah. but the other side of that is, I mean, you Talk look now, you look now, it's this, lacrosse has had this explosion at both the high school and now at the college level. In fact, colleges all over the place are offering all these scholarships. And I have a nephew who's actually in you know, he's lacrosse, actually he, maybe. he's in lacrosse. He's actually just a junior, in, I mean, a, a sophomore in high school. And he's mm-hmm. been, you know, he's actually had some major universities actually talk to him about possibly a, um, you know, having a lacrosse scholarship in there. So it was kind of interesting the way that you described how the, the NCAA actually defines what you can and cannot do based on your university. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I went to I went to the University of South Carolina, and and my whole amount of fencing amounted to one corner of these lunges. That after I did the first day, I couldn't walk. You know, and I'm trying mm-hmm. to go. Well, wait a minute. And I I was in great shape. I was still boxing at the time, but there was I was doing stuff in a manner that I was not used to. You know, just making all. It was just constantly lunging. And I, th- you know, if I have the terminology incorrect, uh, you know, I apologize. But I thought no, no, you just no. called, me, called it like foil. You know, you just stepped out and lunge, stepped out and lunge, and you that's, poke a sharp blade that's, to somebody that's, they can well, step back. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, hope, I, I was hoping so. But I remember actually my own very sweet. Um, uh, she, she was an Olympian uh, in uh, 1936, the same one that the famous Helen Meyer was a. Uh, um, uh, a Jewish woman who actually fenced for Germany in 1936. Her story is often told, you know, about she, that yeah. last. Was Olympics. she hot? What's sorry? Was she Crap. hot? <laughs> I I've seen photos, but you know they're very gray. Don't make me go there, man. <laughs> very good answer. <laughs> very good answer. Yeah, but my my um, my college instructor for foil was on the same team, right? And very um, a German Quaker, by the way, which was as abused, not quite as abused as Jews were, but not favored. Put it that way. Um, and, you know, she, this very, very, very nice person for the first class, uh, for fencing at, at Clark University where I went back in 1973, she made us basically sit on our heels and walk and sit on our heels and lunge and recover back to sitting on our heels. And I had been fencing for two years already. And I thought, what is this woman about? This is all too hard. 
And then <laughs> the next day, you know, half the people came back. She was happy, and she had that group to work with. You know, exactly. She, like, waited, she waited. What she did, she yeah. waited out those she didn't want in her class. Yeah, it, it was very, you know, I was about to say it was very gentle. Well, the attitude was gentle, but what we were made to do wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but right. um, brutal lunges. <laughs> yeah. But i got to tell you, you know, we don't, you know, I, I am surprised I go to different regions. I was at one point the Northeast Vice President of the United States Fence and Coaches Association. Um, and going around the Northeastern region of the U.S., which I did, you know, when you're paying for it yourself, you do it as you can, but not incredibly much. It wasn't like I toured, you know. But I was amazed to see some of the notions that were, say, so classical, they weren't um, current. I won't say antiquated, but current um, in fencing. And that really way, you know, sit way down, hold the blade upward on a 45-degree angle, and hold your backhand in the air, oh, which, you know, yeah. um, that stuff, we don't really do that anymore, you know. <laughs> you know, um, it's more limber, it's more nimble, you... In, in foil, you crouch down because they have to get through to your chest, and to get beyond your knee to your chest makes it eat harder. Right. But, but in, in Sabre and Epe, you can do, use a much more compact, sometimes upright stance. It depends on the individual, just like in barehanded martial arts, it depends on the fighter. It's you know? the same structure. It's just uh, how big is the circle, how tight is the crouch, all that. Right. And, nice. Yeah. And, of course, you've got to remember, fencing... Uh, up until now, um, straight lines. Unless, uh, and there is, by the way, you know, um, it's funny in Asia, um, especially in Japan, kendo and so, and some of these other things that are the classic weapon uses usages are actually getting less and less with the population because they're so expensive. Yeah, you, know? you really um, got to kit up for that stuff. Right, yeah, it's and, kind of expensive. And, right, and fencing in China and Korea and now Japan skyrocketing. Oh, my Lord, skyrocketing. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, Western fencing, as we would call it, is very big in China and very big in Korea. There's a big group in Hong Kong as well as Singapore, actually. Yeah, yeah. Hong Kong, mostly foil, but yeah. very, very active. Yep. Um, you know, and uh, let me see. You know, so and, and then here in the United States, exactly the opposite. The, the you know... Um, I was going to ask. <laughs> you, you, do, you do have... Fencing is a relatively expensive sport. I'm not in any way, not by any stretch of the imagination, well to do. But um, I'm a professional fencing coach, so I often say to myself about both martial arts and fencing, if I had to do this and it wasn't my job, I couldn't afford it. Um, right. you know, but, um, but, you know, HEMA, uh, Historical European Martial Arts, is getting very, very big. And I'm talking to, you know, when talking to some of the martial, uh, not martial arts, the fencing equipment suppliers, they're really laying in a lot of historical European martial arts equipment, clothing, protective equipment. Um, it's getting bigger and bigger here. It's non-electric, and I think they're happy with that. I mean, um, do, do you play that stuff too? How much does that overlap with classic sport fencing now that it's, you know, it's becoming more popular, the Western martial arts stuff? Well, you know something? If I, if I got together with you gentlemen, I have this great feeling that we would be talking about similar concepts and understanding what we were talking about right away, you know, yeah. um, and then we would talk about applying it in the sport of fencing or whatever. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, especially if you're educated in the history, in the history of fencing, uh, it's very, very familiar, right? But look, you know, if you're using a full weight saber and you're wearing, which is essentially a coaching suit and padded stuff, it's a heck of a lot different than uh, uh, 
a fencing saber which weighs, you know, you're talking about grams and not pounds. Yeah, right. experiential um, wisdom and knowledge is always right. going to be a little bit heavier than uh, philosophy in the head. There, there you go. There's no replacing doing the actual thing. Right. You know? Right. And well, I'm, I'm, I'm basically asking, to, you know, do fencers tend to do a lot of that stuff? Or do the Western people go to, you know, the Western recreational martial not recreational, but trying to recreate Western, uh, you know, classical martial arts. Recreational, not right. recreational. Uh, sorry, I really butchered <laughs> that one. Uh, do, do, they, do they feed off of each other? You know, do, do they go train fencing uh, to, to bolster that? I'd say it's a lot like, say, take, uh, you know, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm casting about for uh, an activity. Let's say even karate, right? Karate okay. where, you know, if you are a W-class World Karate Federation competitor, if you're a world-class competitor, that's all you do. You know, sure. but if you're a karate player, a karate black belt, you've even very decent development, you know, um, been to some tournaments, but like, you know, you're, you know, uh, adult enough to wonder what it all means. You may look back and try to do what actually historically karate was for, which was for self-defense. Um, and yes, so, you know, what I'd say is the more you're into, you know, and have to be into to keep up with the comp- competition element of your martial arts sport, the less you do in terms of historical martial arts, which is, you know, it's almost a shame, you know, because we really should do both. Um, Well, is there a big society for that? In other words, you were talking about the Spanish circle. Are there major teachers still teaching that as a, you know, as the original art? Hey, look, boss, um, there are a few claiming to do that, but okay. how, how but, valid but, the claim but, uh, is. Yeah, you know. there you go. But there are many more people who are reconstructing it out of the ancient fencing treatises and right. are practicing, and there are big groups for that. And as always, there are two groups. There's one group that does ATMA, and I forget what it's called. Um, and then there's another called ARMA, which Arma, is called yeah. John Clements. Right, and there's, uh, I think now, a national, um, what is it, um, not a conference. Um, all you, bro. You know, um, and uh, they they get together and all these different groups kind of sh- show each other what they do. It's a Western martial arts group, right. right? And they're getting bigger. They're getting bigger. So if you wanted to study broadsword or, um, I mean, there are these groups, or Dimicator is one of them. Um, uh, you know, uh, there are these groups where you could actually study, yes, classical weapons and classical weaponry. Well, one that I've, sorry? We have a group here in Atlanta that does that. In other words, what they have done is simply, like I said, is just rebuild off the old manuals about how to, yeah, and actually how to do, and I, I forget if it's called, you know, realistic medieval fighting or what their name is. I don't recall right at the moment. But they were actually showing that if you're using just like a buckler and a knife, you know, he goes, it's over in seconds. You know, yeah, this is it, not something that lasts. It's not the arrow. It's Flynn not theatrical stuff. sword play. Right. right. He goes, it's <laughs> over. It's literally over in seconds. Yeah. But aside from yeah. that, there was, there was something I want to touch on with you uh, that I heard you mention earlier and, and uh, just in your natural talking and it, and it rang true with me and it made me realize a little bit more about who you are and your beliefs and stuff like that when it comes to martial arts. Because granted, speaking with you is... Um, very interesting because, you know, you've got the Japanese, you've got the Japanese arts, and, and you've got the soul and spirit of Japanese arts when we were talking earlier. I got that, mm-hmm. you know, and you've all obviously uh, obviously played in depth uh, with the Korean arts as well, with the Hapkido and so on and so forth. Um, and then, I, you know, granted, I 
took note of even your your Chinese experience. I could hear the way that you said your Chinese styles and so on and so forth. And now we're talking about uh, the Western side of things and the foil and so on and so forth. And one of the key phrases that you used, um, in, in specifically in reference to the Western, uh, you know, fencing and all this, uh, it, reali- it made me realize you're talking about uh, kind of martial arts and the whole movement in general. Um, and the way you said it was uh, very unifying, and I liked it, but I'd love to get your interpretation in more depth about it. And what you said was that person needed to be more adult in their understanding of their martial technique. And I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your understanding. Come from the heart. You know, don't speak correctly or properly. <laughs> speak from the heart. Seriously. No, that's what Haya is about. You know, um, but you have an obvious experience over a, a vast array of things, and then you apply them into the foil, and I'm still seeing, you know, a lot of good, good wisdom here, and I'd love to hear your take on that. You mean about what I would, you know, what I, you know, like, kind of terms an adult approach or an exactly. adult? Exactly. Okay. You well, use the word adult, but I, uh, but I see it as wisdom and everything else. Or mature. And, yeah. I, yeah. Okay, yeah. And well, what does that mean answer. to you? Let him yeah. answer. No, no, I get it. I get it. Look, you know, I've been at this a while now, you know, and uh, uh, I'd say that, you know, at first you're really concerned about being effective. I think you never stop concerning yourself about being effective. Um, but then... After a while, you know, we we come out, we start in martial arts, and let me see, there's a a kind of a a cult of of personality around your instructor or your instructor's instructor or, you know, the martial art in the country of origin, right? Um, Which, you know, if you're at it long enough, you you still retain a love for it, but you outgrow the idea that daddy can beat up everyone on the block, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Right. I beg your pardon. You you know, and and so that, that hero worship may still be there, but it's tempered with an idea that, um, you know, everybody's got something good. It's just, I like this best, you know, um, or these things best, right? Um, The mountain becomes a mountain again. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think also with that comes, um, and, you know, know, young, younger men, young, young boys want to be tough. And I, I really think that's a good thing. I think, um, learning to be not mean and not tough for tough's sake, you know. Um, but the don't idea don't be of, the douchebag on the playground. Yeah, right, le- learning that. to stand on your own two feet, and when you confront people, you don't say, "I'm going to knock your block off." You say, "Hey, look, I don't like what you did, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you're going to let you know, and you're going to leave me alone, or 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 something like that." You know, the, confronting can also be asking for a raise. I mean. It, you know, it, um, it, you need the courage to be able to stand in front of somebody and say what you That's believe. That's why I asked your question, okay. yes. Right, right. But then you have to contrast that with being the biggest monkey, okay? Um, the, the enforcer, the, the guy who doesn't get beaten, you know, I, you know, when it turns into how tough you are and you're facing each other down all the time, it has its place, but it has to, in my opinion, it should grow beyond that. Like, for instance, MMA. I'm fascinated with MMA. But that can't be all, because, you know, something, if that's all it is, then you're heading for, and I, I've, I've had a hip replacement up from 30 years judo practice. I've had but 12 to 13. Believe it or not, I won almost every single match I ever played striking arts. I still had broke my nose 12, 13 times. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know the man who used to have a nose. Okay, um, you know, I've, I've got I'm all, sure you're you know, a very handsome man. <laughs> oh, thank you. Don't no, listen no, no, to him, you know, audience. 
It's, it's an okay nose, but it's not the one you know I was born with. You were born with, but, right? Yeah. But, I'm um, just saying we got to come back to this cat for more later. This guy's yeah. got a lot. <laughs> Keep talking. Uh, no problem. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. But what I mean to say is that you know that it gets beyond that, and you don't just court. If the whole thing is courting both the arthritis from the grappling and the head injuries from the uh, from the striking, striking. Yeah. then then what's the point? You know. So, you know, I'd like to see it go beyond. That period in your life, I really do think, has to be there for you to get beyond it. You know? Yeah. Um, no, I see what you're saying. You know? No, you uh, have to be a douche to realize you're a douche to stop being a douche. Well, no, he's just talking about, you know, being very physical and testing yourself. And when you're young, that's right. when you do it because you do heal up better than you will when you get to be my age or whatever. Whatever that period right. is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, exactly. and there's, and there's exactly. some. There's some yeah. avenue that when you're younger that you want to prove it, and age, and age is that one thing that tempers us to go. Now I don't need to prove it anymore. If you, you know, there's an old expression my dad used to say when somebody would, you know, when he felt threatened, he goes, "You do what you got to do. I'll do what I got to do, and what happens happens." And he was, and he was very, and he was very confident that he that. You know, I made a comment to somebody once before. They said, you know, do you think you can beat me? And I go, no, but I can promise you, you will never want to fight me again. <laughs> yeah, it'll be <laughs> annoying for me. Yeah, I mean, do, am I going to win? No, I just want to cause you pain. Yeah. The idea that, yes, that this is not something you can do for free if you're going to be a bad it's person. Going to, it's yeah. going to cost you. If you want to throw a punch at me, that's fine, but it's going right. to cost you. Well, yeah. past a certain point, it's yeah. not playing. And, uh, and, yeah, that's that maturity you're talking about. We've got to yeah. talk to this guy again in the future. I'm All right, well, right we're now. still talking to him now for at least a couple of minutes. So. <laughs> 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 he's got everything. Uh, he's a Craig's all excited over there. I am. He won't get near his mic, but he's all excited. Oh, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we've had you on for almost an hour, and I don't want to keep on the phone all night. We can't always talk to you again if you'll let us, but uh, I want to dig just a little bit more about the fencing out of you before we sign off on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what... What is competitive fencing like nowadays? I mean, because I'm speaking for myself, but I haven't seen, you know, any fencing since I had a friend who did it in college. You know, is there a vibrant tournament scene? Uh, You know, what's a typical tournament like? And, and, you know. And aside from that, something that I I personally would like to know, um, Mm -hmm. not just from, you know, a, a podcast point of view, but how do you translate the sport into the combative aspect of holding a sword, a real live sword in your hand. Sword meaning what everybody who's not a martial artist will resonate with. You know, how do you put a live blade in your hand and deal with that? Can you take fencing and pick up a sword and, say, defend yourself in a sword fighting? You know, somebody comes at you with a blade, now I've got my sport uh, combat you know, fencing, and now I know how to react. Yeah, or do the rules and the weights of the weapon basically not really make it ideal for that sort of cross-training? Exactly. Well, no, um, I'd say, yeah, the rules do affect it and the whole thing, but in terms of working knowledge from tactics and theory, oh, yeah, look, I when I was doing a striking, essentially boxing um, uh, segment of um, Steve Kupfer's uh, American Samba Association, um, what is it, uh, their, their Samba Summit, the cross yeah. training we did. Yeah. Um, That's our buddy. <laughs> I was showing footwork. Oh, Steve. Yeah. You know, I, I was showing footwork to go with hand striking, and I did, you know, essentially what you could call, it's not really based on fencing, but in fencing is where I encountered it, 
But, um, you know, if the guy comes at you and you see that hand flying at you and it's fast and you're not going to move those feet, you block the darn thing. Uh, but you block because he caught you flat-footed and you're getting punched if you don't put a hand on it. Okay. Right. Then, you know, if there's any flaw in the approach or any signal, right, um, you're not going to block anything because the guy's throwing his footwork at you first and he's trying to be deceptive, so you counterattack. Um, counterattack meaning you hit and you either stay where you are or move backwards as you do. Okay. Then, um, you know, if the guy's coming lunging at you and then you know, kind of throwing his head forward and then throwing the blow, which seems stupid, but it can actually cause you to hesitate choosing what you're going to do. That's when you see the body coming at you and you have no idea what's going to come at you other than, you know, that he's moving his center body mass forward. You attack into it, which is, you know, of course, now you've been, I'm thinking sensing, I'm thinking parry repost as opposed to, which is block and counter, as opposed to counter attack, which is moving backwards and hitting in. And attacking the preparation means you're moving forward, anticipating his motion as he comes. Gotcha. Okay. Right now, Japanese call that go-no-sen, you know, and then uh, tai-no-sen and sen-no-sen, attacking the attack. So, the initiative I against the opponent's initiative. It's all the same thing, though. Yeah, it's all the same stuff. And by the way, I heard it one time uh, in description of gung fu, and it made immediate sense. They said, well, you know. It's all the same body principle. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, did I. And uh, so that was my applying. You know, drilling over and over again those same movements and fencing using the exact same footwork, except a little bit spread because you're using both hands, um, to showing what to do when the opponent's approaching you uh, in the attack. This is counteroffensive opposed to defense. Now let's take this and put a heavier blade in your hand. Um, you know what to do, but I have to say you better be strong enough to hold and use that blade. Right. You know, you'll know what to do. Can you do it? Now, I don't know. If you haven't done a push-up in 20 years and You've counted on a lightness of blade, and believe me, sensors, you know, they're in good shape, but they're in varying kinds of good shape. The um, other aspect has you know. to do with fear. A lot oh. of times, I mean, because dealing with blades in real life yeah. and in a class scenario, when somebody just walks up on you and goes, hey, give me that shit, and you realize there's a blade on your side of your neck, it's a completely different thing. Right. It is, but just yeah. just like sport fighting can be good yeah. prep. I mean, that still gets you really amped up. You know, it, it makes does. you nervous, yeah. competition, and all that. It's actually pretty good. Uh, you know, yeah. preparation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Oh, and by the so, no, I completely agree. Fear and stress changes everything. Yeah. And if you're not if you're not very thoroughly trained and mentally prepared, um, you know, by your training, then you better be one of those impulsive persons that. Fear galvanizes rather than freezes. They exist, but they're not as common as the guys who freeze. Yeah. Okay. That's why we nice. practice it. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the whole reason of practice, when, you know, I'm just trying to get my students to understand the whole reason we practice is so you don't Condition under or response. overreact to what's happening to you. It's a no, very, very interesting. And, and before I go to the tournament thing, there are, I found, you know, I actually did research on the startle response. And it's funny, there's, you can tell certain things, but the coordination of the student. This is as a coach, I suppose, right? When you're teaching someone and their startle response has them, cr you know, crunch forward and bend their arms and hide their head, that's <laughs> what, that coordination is, okay, I can work with that. This is not so bad, right? If you have that rare person and they exist and they're more common than you want, that, you know, when they get stressed, their elbows straighten and their knees straighten. You oh, have, that's hard. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to work a lot harder with that person. Not impossible, but the minute you see it, you know you're going to have to take more care 
and more practice time and be more patient with that student. No but that's what even better. That's even better. You know, of course, we want the person that tucks the elbow and does all the natural reaction. Yeah. And then we, we not want to have the person that, you know, straightens and sli- or, you know, rigid, shocks yeah. rigid, whatever. Yeah. But the worst, okay, those are two. But the worst yeah. even still is the one that doesn't respond. Oh, and that's, <laughs> that's 98% of the population, unfortunately. I don't you, think it's that bad. but <laughs> You get fear and you go shock, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah, I got to say, you're absolutely right on that. It's like, you know, I'm dealing with people kind of already into it a little bit. Yeah, but 98 of the population is like, eh, and they don't move. Not exactly. Move. I mean, yeah. it's the difference between right. the tin man and the scarecrow. Well, part you know, of the reason, so, yeah. That's true. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, I, God can I use that? You that's can. Fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I, got a new, I got a new guy. Go been, I got a new guy starting my class. He's so <laughs> soft. I've been going, I go, now, we're, the, the whole thing is now we got to just increase the power of you. Because being soft, he allows power. He doesn't. Re- he doesn't bone up, as our old teacher used to say. Right. And he doesn't. And he, and he still moves his body. Where I have other students, they'll just lock up and freeze yeah. up. Yeah. And they're much harder to work with. I'd rather start with the scarecrow than I would the tin man. But there is always that you know that gap of how do you just you know how do you how do you bring both back into what you're looking you know how to you know, how you're trying to train them. Well, the guys that are too hard, you have to convince them that that if they want to succeed, they need to soften up so they can change related to what's actually going on in the moment. Yeah, but, well, you know, it's, and then the soft guys, you remind them you can't soft someone to death. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, I'm actually honored to call him a friend still. He was the um, David mechanic, just retired from UPenn as a fencing master. And we, oh. we love telling bad jokes and puns. And he turned to me and said, very, and he, he's still smiling. but said, Dane, you know, uh, we're at dinner. He said, that's why we make bad puns, because we live on mental connections. Yeah. You know, so you tell bad jokes and you're making that mental connection. They get it. You know, it's a mental connection and jo- jokes and puns really are part of it. And I thought, this guy never stops working. Holy shit, we're eating dinner. You know, but uh, I'm sorry. But, but at the same time, you know, at the same time, you know, it, he was right. You know, um, by the way, in terms of uh, tournaments, there's the United States Fencing Association or USA Fencing is now they call all the Olympics is USA something. And the, the tournament. Anything in, good you know, would be really, really, really profoundly big to the point where it's hard to find spots where you can do other things and new things in it. Um, okay. It's most, I'd say, most pronounced in the Northeast United States and in California. In your area, it's quite active. In fact, uh, Georgia, there's a fellow named Rick Thompson who is both into you know, uh, the historical re- uh, reconstruction and into... Um, uh, you know, the actual modern fencing, Sport. and he's a wonderful guy. Um, I think he's in is he Atlanta area. I forget. I'll find, I'll find out. Um, but uh, he's someone to look up. Uh, and, um, you know, and there are other people, too. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, just the only shout-out I really would like to give is to Steve Copper, who, you know, oh, essentially yeah. hooked us up. And, you know, Sambo, yep. i got to say, he's a sane man in Sambo and running an organization and doing a fantastic job with it. Steve, you know? if you're if Steve, if you're hearing this, this is Big Al. You're Kung Fu, no good. <laughs> <laughs> you can quote me. <laughs> he, it's going to be a real pleasure did. to put those two in a room one day. <laughs> hey, listen, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. We are going to be calling you a second and a third time. You're you an interesting fellow. 
because uh, we were talking, you know, and originally we were saying, oh, this is the Western fencing guy. And then we found out that you yeah. have quite an experienced, um, knowledgeable experience. experience yeah, yeah, the Japanese arts and everything else. Mm-hmm. And you seem very wisdom. I mean, you got some, you got some, uh, you got some stuff about you. And we're gonna be calling you back for sure. I just got, a, a lot I just got an email from somebody that um, from we met on Friday once. Uh, the uh, link for the podcast. Oh, oh did you? Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I remember I now if she was hot chicks. Craig, mind. Craig, we got it. <laughs> oh, we're on point. Okay. <laughs> we're still talking here. Shit. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, just simply, uh, as far as that goes, you know, talking about martial arts is like, uh, I don't know much about tennis, but it's you're as good as your partner. You know? Yes, That's what my wife said the other day. Yeah, well, was she crying when she said that? Hey, brother, listen. That's how we are. Listen, I can tell that you're a relaxed, laid-back guy. Do that with us. Don't worry about you know this being a podcast and on air. We get naughty. We get naughty. Relax. I think Craig's a little tipsy. so hey. I would never be. Yeah. I would never be. There's only all but uh, six so empty cool. beer cans. Uh, We're really. going to have to take him outside and ring him out in a minute. Right. Uh, but... Man, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. This has been a lot of fun, and, Super and we've cool. learned a lot about uh, you know about f- both fencing and all this other cool stuff you're into. <laughs> yeah, geez, you know a lot, man. We're calling you back. I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to. Yeah, deal I'm, with I'm it. gonna check out your Rick uh, Thompson guy just to see who's who's available in Atlanta or in the Georgia area. You know, just to, just to be able to have that information available because you know occasionally we run across people and somebody says, you know, do you know anybody? And I go, well, in fencing, I'd have to say no. But not anymore. Well, thank you very much. Look, if I ever get down there, I'm looking at the whale sharks again. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I would love to be able to drop in on you. And please call me again. Oh, sure. Let's set up another one. <laughs> this has been a hell of a lot of fun. Absolutely. We will do so. And uh, we will take you to the aquarium and buy you a hot dog and a Coke. <laughs> take, take a bit That's of how hot we are. We got to take a bit of varsity. There you go. Well, Dane, it was a pleasure. Yeah, Thank it was. Thanks indeed. for coming on. Hi, ya, Dane. You can find out about me in the Drew University Sensing Program at Drew, uh, you know, w, um, drew.edu. Um, you know, uh, which is our, our the Drew University website. You go to fencing, but the private website is southmountainmartialarts.com, dot com, all one word. Okay, southmountainmartialarts dot com. www dot com. Okay, we'll uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, or go at to least this fellow. Yeah. yeah, get and- to this fellow, y'all. Everybody go check out his uh, webpage, and uh, we will uh, talk to you again soon, hopefully. Gentlemen, a delight and more delightful than, than I thought. I, you know, I was told to Steve, by Steve that I'd have a good time, and I didn't suspect how good it would be. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, uh, tell what, Steve what? the check's in the mail. That's yeah. right. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. When talking with potential customers at my martial arts academy, I am frequently asked questions like, how long before I can defend myself? Or, how long until I'm good? Or, how long before I can fight in the cage? Let's take these questions one at a time. How long before I can defend myself? This question is an example of the logical fallacy of the false dichotomy or false choice postulating that a person exists in one of only two states, one in which he can defend himself and the other in which he cannot. As is usually the case with a false dichotomy, the truth is that people fall somewhere on a spectrum. I usually illustrate this point to prospective customers like this. You can already defend yourself, at least against a portion of the human race. When faced with disagreement, I then go on to clarify. Surely you can defend yourself against a newborn baby. Of course, everyone laughs and agrees to that. The truth is that we are all somewhere on a spectrum. There are those far below us against whom we would prevail in a fight without fail, those far above us against whom we would stand little or no chance, and those who fall near enough to us on the spectrum that random factors would play a significant role in determining the outcome of an altercation. These factors would be similar to those that would determine which of two evenly matched sports teams would win any given game. What diligent training is good for in the martial arts and what it will do for you is to gradually move your position on this spectrum towards the end that is favorable to you. Unfortunately, it is very difficult to predict for any one individual how fast this progress will be. A number of different factors can and will either speed up or slow down the process. These would include your own talent, the teaching ability of your instructor, your level of dedication, the frequency of injury, etc. Some of these factors are in your control. Many are not. This should make it clear that there is no definitive easy answer to the question, how long before I can defend myself? Equally difficult to answer is the question, how long before I'm good? This is a hopelessly subjective question that is even more difficult to answer in any meaningful way. How do you define good? How does your instructor define it? At what moment do you cross the line from not good to good? I like to draw an analogy from music to illustrate this point. When you purchase a guitar from the music store but don't yet have a clue as to how to play it, could you accurately be described at that point as a guitarist? What about after your first lesson? What about after three months of lessons? At what point do you cross that magical line where yesterday you were not a guitarist and today you are? This is what Bruce Lee was talking about when he said, Jeet Kune Do is a process, not a product. Sometimes when explaining this to a prospective customer, they will respond to me with something like, well, you're just saying that because you want me to keep paying for classes for a long, long time. I, and I understand this sentiment. No one relishes the thought of shelling out money for an indeterminate amount of time. It is simply the case that I am not able to give a meaningful answer to the question, how long will it take me to become good? After giving the prospective customer this nuanced but long-winded explanation, I usually follow up with this. 
I will tell you this. If you apply yourself, I think you'll find that after a few months, you'll be very happy with your progress, but not yet satisfied enough and will probably want to continue. As for the question, how long before I can fight in the cage, that one's a bit easier to answer. First, I tell the prospective student that while you may find schools in this area that will get you into your first fight in a matter of months, my school's not one of them. In my mind, only a very gifted student will be ready for the cage within two years, and that for most students, four years is a more realistic estimate. Don't just take my word for these answers to these questions. Ask your own teacher or anyone else whose opinion you respect. Let me know what you think by contacting me through email at rpmaa, the numeral one, at evansville.net. This has been Jeff Westfall for The Marshall Brain. <laughs> we need Mickey. <laughs> we need the fourth part. There you go. <laughs> okay, we need to have a Saturday group, y'all. <laughs> that sounds fun, man. That was silly but fun. Yeah, we need to have a Saturday group. Yeah. Saturday. I think we do. All right.